Howdy gamers, it's Layton here from Layton Night, the podcast that you're currently listening to in case you accidentally stumbled upon this, in which case I am sorry, but just wanted to let you know that there is a video version of this episode that is up on our Patreon for all tiers. So if you want to join us over there, depending on the tier, you can get all sorts of cool benefits. We do mini-sodes every week. We do some fun videos. Uh, You get access to our fan discord and overall it's a really lovely time and we would love to have you there. So without any further ado, here is the audio version of this episode. So if you want to do the video version, you can go to patreon.com slash Leighton Night or not. Really whatever floats your boat. Anyway, episode... Now, late, I gotta say, <sighs> you texted me the words fuck yes about 10 minutes ago. I feel like we should just get into this yeah. right away because you are very excited. So, for context, you know, no, we're not gonna introduce the show just yet, but Bill and I have known <laughs> yeah. each other for a while. But Leighton was like, okay, tell me a little bit about our guest, and then sent me a link and is like, is this the guy? And I said, that's the guy. Oh, I cannot wait to find out what this link <laughs> and is. Then, well, well, let me quote. Let me quote your text. Is this the same guy? Quote. If so, I'm going nuts on him. And then I said, "That's the guy." And then you texted back, "Fuck yes." All caps. So I'm either in a lot of trouble or I'm going to have a good time. I'm not sure which one. What did I do here, Leighton? What did What did you do? Well, the the website that I found is something that talks about your course on uh, amusement parks and law. And this is something I'm very interested in on both fronts. And it was an interview that you did about Action Park. Probably the one for, on Marketplace would be my guess. Uh, yeah, I think so. So yeah, before we jump into that, I would actually like to know how you two met and know each other. Now we have to introduce... The show. I, I hate to force your hand on us doing the one thing that <laughs> podcasters are supposed to do in a timely yeah, manner. Traditionally, it does happen at the top of the show. But, but I, I live to buck tradition. It's true. Yet, I feel like in the last few episodes of the show, we have been increasingly, and I say every time this is atypical, but now it is becoming typical that we introduce the show at the beginning. So we're going to do it again, which is now, I guess typical. Everybody, this is Leighton Knight with Brian Wecht. My name is Brian Wecht. Over here we have Leighton Gray. That's me wearing a Tom White shirt. Mystery guest. Would you care to introduce yourself? So early? That seems so, so, so novel. I'm Bill Childs. Bill Childs, I'm in St. Paul. And uh, I actually came into this not sure which of my various side things we were going to talk about. Possibly Mm. all of them. Possibly all. But one of them is I created and teach a law school class about amusement parks generally sort of framed around Action Park. And it was interesting, I was listening to the one from Defunct Land. Kevin. Yay. Kevin Porter. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Great interview, interesting guy. I've, he's got a really good episode about Action Park. But I feel like our Venn diagrams of amusement parks we love are like almost don't overlap. Like he's a very much a Disney guy. And I've ridden, I don't know, a couple hundred roller coasters. I've been in Disney parks. I've never ridden a ride in a Disney park. But anyway, that's who I am. Well, welcome. We're happy to have you. It's great to be here. 
Yes, thank you so much. This this has been a couple months in the making due to scheduling, which is great. It's always fun when these things finally come to fruition. So Bill and I, we know each other through a totally different means, which is through kids music or family music, I guess is the as people say, you can these call it days. kids music if you want. Kids, yes. I, I typically say kids music, although I'm sure you've encountered this. When you say kids band, people don't know if it's like for or with, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have kids singing. It is music for kids and their grownups. So yeah, I, for like 18 years, I've been doing a family music radio show, and actually 18 years, like a week ago or something like that. That's amazing. And it's very weird. Would be another way you could put it. Like it's a it's a strange <laughs> thing to do. Like I started when my kids were little and my my older kid is now doing her PhD and my son's about to finish college. And here I am still doing a radio show every week for for children. But it makes it so I get to meet people like Brian and hear the what kids music comes up from a guy from Ninja Sex Party. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, for, for con- I think everybody listening to this probably knows, but just in case, I have a kids band with the amazing Jim Roach called Go Banana Go. And it was through Stephanie Myers that we met because when we, we hired her as a publicist for our first album and she introduced uh, me and Jim to Bill and vice versa. And we went to a baseball game together. And too. we went to a ba- when uh, NSP was on tour through Minnesota. I got in touch with Bill because I was like, oh my God, we're actually going to be in the same place for the first time ever. And he was nice enough to take me to a St. Paul Saints game, which was great. Wow. Yeah. So Bill, when you started your kids show, was that uh, born out of having your kids and just wanting to make a thing for other kids or how'd that go for you? Yes. And more than that. So I had done radio in college. I went to McAllister College in St. Paul here, which is actually where my son is too. Loved doing radio, thought about doing radio as a career. Happily did not do that because that way madness lies. But (laughs) I'm just one of those guys who's obsessed with radio. I love radio. I think terrestrial radio especially is really, really cool. So my older kid was, they were born in 1999 and my son in 2002. And that was an interesting time in music for families. It was around that same time, like 2001-ish, there was a New York Times magazine cover story about Dan Zanes, who is sort of a superstar in kids' music. He had been in the band The Del Fuegos, which I kind of remembered, didn't love exactly, but they were fine. But it sounded interesting, so I went and bought that because I have these little kids, and there was a lot of pretty annoying music for them, but this sounded Mm -hmm. less annoying. And so I got that, and Amazon suggested Justin Roberts, who's still a great uh, family musician. And about that same time, we had moved up to Western Massachusetts. I'd become a law professor full-time for eight years before I went back into practice, and there was a little community, a low-power FM station, looking for programmers. And I thought, oh, that'd be fun to do for a little while, do a radio show with my kids. And so I pitched the show, came up with a silly name, Spare the Rock, Spoil the Child, and started at that little station. And then a commercial station in town said, hey, would you like to come do the show there instead? And we moved, uh, I left uh, teaching and moved to Austin, and my kids were fifth grade and eighth grade then. And I sort of assumed that would be the end of it. And they said, no, no, we really still like doing this show, even though, because they're, they're on the show with me. I mean, now they're mostly not because they don't live here, but we still really like being on there, even though we're well out of the age range. And so I figured out how to record at home and went into syndication. And then now we have a home station in Austin and then we moved to St. Paul, but I still do the show from here as well. I see this big CD wall. What percentage of that is children's music? Let's see here. It's probably, what is that, 10 shelves? The bottom four are kids' music. Oh, my um, God. So wow. maybe 30%. Yeah, and I got rid of a lot. 
I was actually just talking with my wife about that. Like before we moved here, she's like, you got to get rid of a bunch of stuff. And I regret to admit that there was stuff I had never listened to that I 100% judged based on the cover. But the cover <laughs> said, nope, that's not going to be it. And moved along. You have to, to some extent, right? You, especially when yeah. you're doing a show, you get so much stuff coming through your door. Like, what can you do? Yeah. And oftentimes the description is enough. Like, this is the new kid's pop. Cool. Go do that kid's pop thing. It won't be here. <laughs> and then I, I probably... A quarter of the music we play is not actually made for kids, too. I mean, like, I play Tom Waits on the show, but, and then The Branches, a couple other songs that he's done, and a bunch of other stuff, which differentiates it from a fair number of other radio shows that are made for kids, and it makes it super fun for me. I like to think of it as as sort of creating another generation of, of music nerds to be like, okay, you like weird stuff, here's some other weird stuff, and some weirder stuff. And same with, like, here's, you know, pretty good hip-hop for kids, put it next to some Run DMC or Diva Soul or whatever. And I don't know how successful it is, but it's fun to think about it being successful. Just anecdotally, at least with my kid, and I'm sure you did the same thing with yours because it's literally what you just said. You know, that's what you do is you find cool music that's like appropriate for their age. And it doesn't matter if it's kids' music or not. It's just the music you like. And then you you play it for them. I was just playing Run DMC for Audrey the other day because I said... Uh, something was like not bad meaning bad, but bad meaning good. And she's like, what's, oh. what's that from? <laughs> and I was like, well, if you want to hear it, here's Peter Piper. And the fun part is, especially with hip hop, a lot of that like late 70s, early 80s hip hop stuff is great for kids, except for the rampant homophobia, which you have to like <laughs> look out for. And it's so casual too. 100%. And it's like, I mean, I'm sure to many people at the time it had that effect, but at least when I was a kid, it did not register as hard as it does for me now, where it is like this glaring, like, whoa, uh-oh, no kind of stuff. But at least the beats are fun, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so as long as you <laughs> edit appropriately. Audrey is obsessed with The Freaks Come Out at Night by Houdini. And oh, wow. she loves <laughs> the, freak, the Freaks Come Out at Night. Uh, so we listen to that one a lot. That's awesome. I mean, I'm curious, Brian, about you and, and Audrey. Like, so when she was younger, how much sort of Heartland kids music was she listening to? Or were you doing more like, here's the Beatles, here's whatever? Let's see. What kids music, kids music do we listen to? Definitely the TMBG albums, which are amazing. And, you yep. know, I, I loved before I had a kid. I'm having a hard time coming up with anything other than They Might Be Giants. Uh, most of it was just music I liked. Yeah. So very, very little. I think is yeah. is the answer. And, well, in fact, when when we got into making kids music, that's when I really started like listening to other, you know, kids bands because I was like, I don't even know what the landscape is out there. And I knew it had almost become a cliche at that point. It's the middle aged rock person who now has a family and is making. Okay, well, let's channel my skill set into making something my kids can listen to. I think my, my favorite two examples of that were Meredith Brooks, who had the mm -hmm. song Bitch. She did a kid's record, which was, yep. I mean, it was fine. And the Verve Pipe. And their, their kid's music is actually fantastic, but it's like just too very unexpected. I mean, yeah, totally. Ninja Sex Party also unexpected, but not cynical. And those are arguably a little Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, that, that was a big part of it, honestly, because it was so different. Like half the songs I made... Audrey just couldn't listen to because they had, you know, it was 90% F-bombs or it was some like- Anal know, sex jokes. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and you 
don't play that. Oh, I should yeah, right. probably change. <laughs> yeah, to switch. Toggle that I, switch. Yeah. Because yeah. I've been doing a lot of those on the kids' shows. <laughs> been getting a lot of emails that I've just been ignoring, so it's a little weird. Yeah. But, you know, we were lucky. A significant portion is covers. And so I could give her the cover albums and be like, listen to that. And sometimes I always love this. I'd catch her in a room, like we got her a tiny boombox, putting in a CD and listening to our cover albums, which is Aww. just the, the cutest thing ever when Precious. you can hear your own music. And she's like dancing and singing along in her room. That was great. That's crazy. But yeah, with the kids band, I was like, let me do something that she can just like listen to and be a part of. You know, she sings on a bunch of the things regularly. She actually, she is now pitching ideas constantly. I mean, wow. constantly. So would this be a good song? What do you think about that? <laughs> she still thinks it's cool to, to be part oh, of Oh, yes. Yeah, well, she has songs on Spotify that she can point to and say, I sang on this. And occasionally at school, they'll be listening to music or at camp or something. And she can be like, hey, can you put on, you know, Petting Zoo <laughs> by Go Banana Go? Uh, <laughs> and then she can feel like a rock star. And she can totally flex. So in thinking about the music that I listened to as a child, like I think skipped over a lot of explicitly children's music and just went straight to classical. Mm -hmm. yep. But I have a white whale of lost media. It is the one CD that I remember so vividly that oh, I've tried over the years. Tell. So hard to find. All right. I was obsessed with dinosaurs. It was a late 90s to early 2000s. And I'm also putting this out for anybody listening. If you know what I'm talking about, please hit me up. If I recall correctly, the album was like a pale pink and it had a green like brontosaurus on the front. But there was a song about the big bad T-Rex. But more importantly, like three fourths of the way through the album, there was a song, Where Did All the Dinosaurs Go? That always made me cry because it's about <laughs> all the dinosaurs dying. And I have no idea who it was by or what the title was. And I've tried many times over the years to find like late 90s, early 2000s, dinosaur oh. children's music. And I've never, I've never found it. So if anybody out there knows, hit me I up. I think I'm going to be able to find that for you. That's really? my guess. <laughs> well, I was about to say, if, if like anyone would know it offhand, it'd probably be you. It's not ringing a bell, although I'm going to search in my, in my library here, but I will dig around. Thank you. Gonna, That's yes. very kind. What did you play for your kids, Bill? Like not on the show, but like just at home. I mean, obviously a lot of the stuff that we listen to on this show. We played on this show. The stuff that they loved the most, there's a band called Lunch Money out of South Carolina who is no longer, well, Molly is doing music, but not as Lunch Money. And there was something very specific about that that kind of went straight to, to my elder kid's heart. She just loved that band. We used to do these big, big road trips when we were living in Western Mass during the summer. I was teaching, so we could do these trips. I'd come up to Minnesota because that's where my wife's family was, and we had a ton of friends and such up here. And then down to Arkansas, which is where my parents retired and where they are from, and then back. So we had hours and hours in the car. And there were two artists that we listened to the most as they got a little bit older, kind of around Audrey's age. And it was Jonathan Colton and Frank Turner. And there's a lot of Colton songs you have to skip. Not a lot, but a yeah. fair number. Of, <laughs> like, first of yeah. boom, boom, boom. Yeah. <laughs> and then Frank Turner, same, right? I mean, he's got a lot of, of enthusiastic songs. Um, so today, my son is very into metal. He, the radio show he does until this coming year was called All Things Heavy. And it was, I mean, metal and hardcore and stuff, which is a lot of what I was listening to when I was his age. And then my, my daughter still does a lot of the same stuff she listened to for a long time. Ezra Furman is coming into the mix a lot and um, still loves the Mike Giants, loves the Hold Steady. She's very she's now back on the East Coast, so she's very excited that she's going to get to go 
see the Hold Steady in Brooklyn with me because she went to college on the East Coast and then did her master's in Chicago. And so when she was uh, on the East Coast, she'd come to Brooklyn every year for for one or two shows. So she listens to a lot of um, like 50-year-old guy music, despite the fact <laughs> that she is, whatever, she is 24. Leighton, you said that when you were growing up, you kind of went straight to classical. That was mostly what was in our house. My parents did not listen to any rock music. We had classical on and then some jazz. My dad had grown up in South Arkansas and he could get Clear Channel, New Orleans AM radio stations there. So he would hear, listen to a lot of classic jazz. And so we had the Time Life like series of jazz records. There were like these big, you know, inch thick box sets. So we listened to a lot of that, but nothing else. Like I remember when the first rock record came into our house, my, my brother, who's four years older than I am, brought home an Electric Light Orchestra album, but not like a good <laughs> ELO album. Uh-huh. It, was, <laughs> it was on the third day, which I've gone back and listened to. It's like, ooh, how did I end up liking rock music after this nonsense? The, <laughs> the second side was all one like 17-minute instrumental cover of In the Hall of the Mountain King. Oh my uh, God. God. <laughs> which, was, which is the most ELO thing ever, of course. Exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. And I, I remember I must have been sixth grade because on Fridays you could bring in records and play for the class. And I never had anything to play because I'd be like, here's this Louis Armstrong record. Like, no, no, that's not what what kids in Northeast Oklahoma were looking for. So I was like, sweet, I've got a rock record and they've got mm-hmm. long hair, so it's going to be cool. This is 1982 or so. So I brought it in. I was like, well, if a song is good, a really long song is even better. So I put it on in the hall of the mountain king <laughs> and it did not go over well. That's fantastic. Although I have a, a, a redemption arc on this later that year. So my mom was a, a organizer for the equal rights amendment and, and various things like that in Oklahoma. And she co-founded the, what was called the women's network, which is a little feminist organization in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, which is a, wild place to start a feminist organization. Um, but they had their <laughs> meetings at at Bonanza, like the chain steak place. And I went there one time and for some reason, the local AM radio station, this is this probably, by the way, explains part of my obsession with radio, had a drawing that you could enter into there and you would win the actual 33 vinyl records of American Top 40. So it was it was Casey Kasem, like you could hear him front selling and back selling and the signals to the local stations and all that. That's and awesome. I was sitting there bored as hell. So I like entered 20 times and won it. And when I brought that in, oh man, the sixth graders lost their shit about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'm curious what you had going on, Layden, but my parents did not listen to music. My father liked like classic jazz. <laughs> this makes a lot of sense. But yeah, by classic does. jazz, I mean like Glenn Miller. You know, he was born in 1935, and I think that was very much the music of his youth. So, like, Swing, you know, that era was, like, what defined – he was a big Brooklyn Dodgers fan, you know, like that kind of, like, Northeast, you know, New Jersey Jewish guy, you know, very much a product of his time. But we never listened to music growing up. I remember they had a few eight tracks and a couple, like, Beatles cassettes but there was never anything on, which is weird. Wow. I mean, yeah, which is very weird. We, we have music on constantly. There's just nonstop music in our house. But, and they had even had like a, you know, a hi-fi system in the family room and everything. And we just never had anything on. I don't know why. Although, although my mother would blame me occasionally. She was a piano player, but apparently when I was very little, I would freak out every time she played the piano. And so 
later in her life, she would say, well, of course, Brian, you made me stop playing the piano, <laughs> which I feel like is, you had you know, to steal her energy. Yeah. I, I feel like maybe she could have done something about that and maybe is, is a bit of an overstatement, but she's been dead for many years now. So I can't ask slash confront her about this, but I am curious to what extent, you know, my mother would hold me responsible for not having music in the household. Probably hmm. at least like a if she bit. thought that you would have freaked out if she'd play, put something on the stereo. I, I guess I don't even know. Like very few albums can I remember listening to, and this this is going to explain a lot. The one like thing I can remember putting on and listening to was Alan Sherman, like nonstop oh. Alan Sherman. My dad loved Alan Sherman because Alan Sherman also you can point to it and be like. See, do you see what we Jews can do? We can we can do this, <laughs> you know. And it was exactly, you know, with that kind of like Alan Sherman, Mel Brooks, you know, that style of like straight up borscht belty sort of humor. That was that was very much his thing. So that's the one album I could point to listening to. There's a fairly straight line to what you do now from that. Oh, yeah. And when I was, you know, a kid, I was born in 75. Like when I was little, I was obsessed with Weird Al. Weird Al was my thing. And I knew all the Weird Al versions before I'd heard the originals. And, you know, my sister would argue about that. Oh, I like the original better. My sister's two years younger. And no, no, the Weird Al version's better because it's funny. It's the same music, but it's funny. You know, that sort of <laughs> that sort of thing. For me, at least we had one of those. Uh, what do you call it? You put a dozens of CDs in it and you can oh, like shuffle. A CD changer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had one of those and there was a pretty wide range of stuff. There was a lot of like movie soundtracks, like the Garden State soundtrack, a movie I've never seen is like very, very nostalgic for me. All oh, right. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. When did Garden State that's like late nineties, isn't it? Two thousand four, Jesus. Was it like the Shins? Isn't that what's on? Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. A good bit of Shins. Yeah. There was a lot of Portishead and Tricky, James Brown, James Taylor Bobby Darren, some Esquivel, like it was kind of all over the place in in a good way. And then later, my mom had one of the earliest generations iPod Nanos, like before they had actual, you know, real screens. It was just sort of like calculator screen, and that had a lot more like cake, etc. Like uh, I feel like I got a pretty good range of stuff, and then I feel like I regressed in middle school and went back to my classical, which is fine, but I was insufferable about it as a nerdy middle schooler who's really into classical would be. By the way, Audrey really responds to cake. Great, of like, she does. fun kid stuff. Who doesn't? I think I may have told this story on the show. I played her short skirt, long jacket, and we get about a minute into the song and she goes, wow, this guy is very particular. <laughs> which I thought was... <laughs> <laughs> really, really great. Has she heard Frank Sinatra by them? That's my favorite cake song. I don't know if she has, actually. I just kind of went through, you know, the top, going the distance, I Will Survive cover, you know, that short yeah. skirt, long jacket, that stuff. I think their cover of War Pigs might have been part of my yes. son's, like, entry into metal. Once he heard, like, oh, that's not a cake. I mean, it's a great cover, but they also do a fantastic cover of uh, Manamana. Oh, I don't know that one. It's on mm. For the Kids or one of those. It's, it's a really, really fun cover. So I, I didn't actually, I never pieced this together, Bill, but I was also a, uh, a DJ in Western Mass in some capacity. So I was a WCFM DJ. And so a lot of my like, you know, introduction, uh, my entire actually introduction to radio was at Williams 
And that's where I came across the, like the new music threshold, you know, late nineties. It's like a trumpet. What? What? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) They played in Western mass. They played at the green river festival that I think it was the same year. I was running a a kid's stage there and I forget the name of the, the singer, but he was very annoyed at playing a festival in Western Massachusetts. I have no idea why, (laughs) but just so, so dismissive of the entire enterprise. Like I love cake. I, I actually, I saw them, the weirdest bill I think I ever saw at South by Southwest it would have been in 1996, I think. And it was them and soul coughing. Mm-hmm. Good so far, like fairly yep. straightforward. Yep, and kind of makes sense together. And Carl Perkins. <laughs> <laughs> who, who was how how old at the time? He, like He must 80? have been 80, yeah. It was, I mean, also great, but it was just like this. And then there was some like uh, kind of fratty country guy. That's awesome. I played a show with Mike Doty once a long time ago because there was a brief period where he was doing like comedy shows in New York. Really? And yeah. And he would just show, just show up him in a guitar and do a 10, 15 minute set. And he was, this, you know, very nice guy. He's a and, super funny guy. Yeah. 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 Except he, he wasn't doing comedy. It was just like. Oh, he was just coming in playing at comedy shows. Yeah. Just playing, you know, doing like a musical set in comedy shows and we were on some variety show together and he was just very you know unassuming nice guy and yeah he just announced i think today announced a new tour and he is now finally doing soul coughing songs again like for a long time he said he wasn't going to but the new tour he's got a full band which has been forever since he's had a full band and they're doing like a set of soul coughing songs and a set of solo stuff oh wow that's great good for him so Leighton, okay now i think you're allowed to talk about (laughs) <laughs> the thing you wanted to talk about. Well, yeah. So are are you still practicing as a lawyer? Or are you uh I am just okay. I would be curious to hear about how you initially got into that and then leading into teaching. Yeah. So I went to law school for the best of all possible reasons, which is that I had a degree from a liberal arts school and didn't know what else to do. (laughs) So I went to the University of Texas at Austin, didn't really know what I was going to do. And there is a great inertia when you are at a sort of good law school and you're doing reasonably well towards big law practice. And I was in that river without being aware that I was in that river. So got recruited to a firm that I practice at in in Washington, D.C. I I graduated. I clerked for a judge in Minneapolis for a couple of years, which is sort of a standard thing to do after law school, and then went to practice law there. Had a great time litigation firm doing interesting stuff, lots of travel, some of which was fun and some of which was less fun. We'd had my elder child when we were back in Minneapolis and realized that while I think it is possible to be a, a good parent while traveling a lot and working tremendous hours, it wasn't the type of good parent I wanted to be. So I started thinking about other things. And I'd had a professor of mine at Texas who had told me to, that I should think about teaching. So I'd kind of done some of the stuff to, to lay the groundwork for that. I'd published a couple of articles and sort of put, put some of that in place. And so I went on the market. There's a not a terribly interesting process for general audiences about what that market is like, but it's weird. It involves a lot of interviews in hotel rooms in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. um, or at least I did then. And ended up getting a job offer from a little regional law school in Springfield, Massachusetts, um, Western New England University. And so I taught just torts and products liability, but I loved examples from amusement parks. One of the many ways that I am nerdy is I'm a a coaster enthusiast. I love riding roller coasters. And I think the legal issues relating to amusement parks are not 
particularly unique, but they are very interesting. And they're, they're sort of accessible for somebody going to law school. Almost everybody has either ridden a roller coaster, or at least knows what one is, and has either been to an amusement park, or has driven by one, or been to a carnival or whatever. And so I use those examples a bunch. And, and I was teaching on the East Coast, and so I'd have all these students, especially early on, because Action Park closed quite a while ago, who would say, you got to teach about Action Park because it's this crazy place. And and, I, and there wasn't much out there about it. So I never really talked about it. And then a couple of years ago, so I went, I taught for eight years and went back into practice, but kept being interested in this stuff, kept writing some. And when, when I was teaching full-time, I also blogged a lot about amusement park safety because back when blogs were a thing. Anyway, so a couple of years ago, there was a documentary film that came out about Action Park that was on HBO Max. I think it's still, or Max, whatever we're calling it now. X. I believe it's just called X. It's called X, point. yes. yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> there was this, this book I'm holding up for people on Patreon. Good job being patrons, everybody. It's called Action Park, Fast Times, Wild Rides, and the Untold Story of America's Most Dangerous Amusement Park. And it's written by this guy, Andy Mulvihill. Andy grew up at the park. His dad owned the park. So he is the definition of an unreliable narrator. Um, <laughs> and um, I, like, I think he was trying to be honest, but he also loves his father. And he's pretty straightforward about that. He, he's come and visited my class. But those two things together, I remember watching the, the movie. I think I'd already read the book. And I sort of idly posted on Facebook or LinkedIn or something. I could teach a really good two-credit class about this. And the academic dean at my old law school saw that and said, okay, <laughs> you want to do that? And I said, well, shit, I guess I have to actually think about how to do that. And so I put together a syllabus and proposed it. And she said, yes. And it's been, I think I've taught it six times now. So so I teach it remotely. So some there and then some at a law school here in St. Paul, again, again, remotely. And it is, it's super fun. So Action Park was unlike any other amusement park, almost to the, the point where I would call it not an amusement park. Leighton, I don't think you're old enough to have been, but I, you know about it, clearly. No, I know a good bit about it. Brian, am I making it up that you went to Action Park? Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up in North Jersey. Yeah. It was a known thing. I remember going once, and I was little. I was probably under 10. I was definitely under 10. And I remember the terrifying wave pool, and mm-hmm. that's the extent so of what I- people drowned. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But it it was it was a known thing. Where I lived, it was a little far away, so it wasn't like just oh go down the road. It was like you would make a trip to go there, but it was like a destination that wasn't too far away that you would go to during the summer, and everyone knew it was like not safe. This was mm-hmm. even, even as you were little, like it was very fun, but that was part of the appeal. Was like anything can happen. It was very much a product of of its time. I mean, it was an anomaly even for the 70s and 80s. But yeah, I went a, at least once, probably only once as as a kid. But definitely I had friends nearby who would go quite regularly. Yeah, one, and the thing that made it different and, and made it potentially dangerous was how much control you had over your experience, right? That's right. Like a wave pool isn't inherent. I mean, it is inherently dangerous, but it isn't inherently more dangerous there than elsewhere, except that they ran it with fewer breaks and without any limits on how many people could be in there. Well, you can avoid anything that bad happening to you by not getting in it, right? Or staying in the shallow end. Or the alpine slides, like most modern (laughs) alpine slides will have speed governors on them. They didn't. So, you know, whatever. You can go as fast as you want. You might fly out and hit your head. And so a bunch of that sort of thing where you had a lot of control over it, which makes it a really 
fun entry point to talk about as a law school class to talk about sort of how much responsibility you want to have there. And, but one of the things that I think is that, that Andy actually talks about in his book pretty well is when you go to, let's say, Six Flags Great Adventure, also in New Jersey, right? When you go there or any normal amusement park, you're going there for the perception of danger without actual danger, right? right. Like you sort of think, well, I'm in this bubble. I, nothing bad can happen to me here. And that's mostly true at amusement parks. Like you get into a roller coaster, they strap you in. You're going to be there when you come back. Almost, uh, we can talk about some some situations <laughs> where that doesn't happen, but it, it's unusual, right? As long as the the, yeah. the 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 lap bar is on correctly, there's almost nothing you can do that's going to result in in you being seriously injured. Right. Action Park, it's the opposite. But I think a lot of people going into a place like that are thinking, "This is an amusement park. This is like going to Six Flags, and there's nothing I can do that can seriously increase my risk." That's right, and they're wrong. Well, <laughs> and a lot of the, the parents sending their kids there were thinking the same thing, of course. Yeah. I mean, if you're a little kid, then you wouldn't go without your parents. But if you're, you know, whatever, 13 or something, yeah, drop the kid off at the park. Yeah, it's going to be fine. It's, you know, these things are controlled. Well, and then they also had just an enormous overlay of alcohol, much more so than, than again, Six Flags or anything like that. Right. A friend of mine, Mike O'Shea, who's a, a filmmaker, he, he went there a number of times, or, but he only really remembers the one time. And he was, you're talking about 13-year-olds. He thinks he was 12 or 13. And a bunch of the metalheads at his school rented a bus. And everybody on the bus, including him, got what he called legless drunk on the way there. So he's a, clearly a child and clearly legless drunk. And he's like, is this going to be a problem? It seems like this should be a problem. And he went in and like, no problem. Like the park had no issue with with any of this. No, because the, the teenagers uh, running the park were also drunk. Quite possibly drunk. <laughs> right. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, again, the book talks about that a lot. So, yeah. and as does the movie. I think maybe the most horrifying detail to me is I can't do... Water slides, they, they terrify me. The cannonball slide with the loop, just the fact that people would come down with cuts on them from people's teeth that teeth, got yes. stuck in the slide is yeah. nightmarish. Yes. Yeah, that's Andy's, that's how he opens the book, and it is a fantastic <laughs> tale. And it never really operated very much because it mostly was just maiming people, yeah. Yeah. which even for Action Park is is sort of not a draw. I mean, but although, I mean, Brian, you pointed out that the stories about it were certainly an advertisement too, right? To some oh, extent. Oh, 100%. It was a place where you could give kids autonomy, right? Which is what every child wants to some extent. And so they'd be like, you never believe what I did and what I saw there. And it was like, oh my God, you, oh, we got to do that. That's incredible. Wait, exactly. the, waves were, the waves were how big? You swung... <laughs> You know, how far on the rope? It's exactly that feeling of like, I'm in control of my own thing. Yeah. So I <laughs> I did want to backtrack a tiny bit. What initially drew you to tort law as opposed to other things? Oh, yeah. So when I started practicing in D.C. at the firm, it was a litigation firm, but they didn't, you weren't in like departments. So you it kind of did a bunch of different stuff. And I did some patent work and I did some commercial stuff. And then I ended up doing some products liability work. And what I liked about that and continue to like about it, I work for a big manufacturing company now as my day job in that kind of work, is that it's where sort of law and science intersect in a way that I find interesting. I'm the sort of the black sheep of my family. I think Brian has heard this this riff before. I've got a brother and a sister, and they both have hard science PhDs. My brother has a physics PhD, and my sister has a plant genetics PhD. I don't know if that counts as hard science to people like Brian, but it's harder harder science than mine. It's borderline, but sure. You'll allow it? I'll allow it. 
<laughs> and then my sister also has a law degree just to make me feel extra stupid. But <laughs> <laughs> my dad was an electrochemist. And my mom was a chemical engineer when she went back to school after doing the ERA stuff. So I, I came up sort of interested in science and good enough at it to be able to have good conversations about it and to, to, to be able to translate some of the more complex subject matters, but not quite good enough at it for that to be what I wanted to do. And so I like that combination where I can, you know, poke around in epidemiology or poke around at some of the rest of this stuff while also doing a lot of writing and, and argument and stuff like that. So that's how I sort of stumbled into tort law and product liability work in particular. And then it, it also has, this is more on the academic side, although it's come up in the, in the practice as well. There's a lot of really interesting things where, the incentives in tort law can make for odd things on the scholarship side. Can you just define what tort law means? Because I, I don't think everybody's sure. familiar with it. Yeah. So it's basically civil remedies for injuries. So anything from like getting in a car accident, if you sue the person who caused the car accident, that's a tort claim. Everything from that to lawsuits against the car manufacturer for making an unsafe car, or a drug maker for whatever. All, all of those sorts of things are, are tort law. Um, so it's a broad category. There's a category of journals that are predatory. That's the word, predatory journals, which are sort of quasi-scholarly journals, but really, like they look like scholarly journals, right? And they're oh, mostly yeah. online. Their only. emails look like emails you'd get from... From real journals. journals, yeah. But really, they will publish almost anything. And there's always, anything. there's every every year or two, there's a very funny example. There was one person who managed to get one of them to publish an article that was just the sentence, take me off your fucking mailing list, repeatedly, <laughs> repeated like 2,000 times. <laughs> no, that one. Had, had footnotes, That's really good. Uh, footnotes, and the footnotes also said, take me off your fucking mailing list. Um, and then there was another one. There's a great website called Retraction Watch Yes, that somebody I know is involved in. And it's just about retractions and and especially in the medical literature but it's it's beyond that as well and he, so this is probably 5 or 6 years ago they covered a medical journalist who did not have a background in medicine beyond what they did as a journalist who had gotten a solicitation to contribute an article to a urinary medicine journal and didn't have any expertise in this so wrote up an entire article based on the Seinfeld episode where I don't remember if it was Jerry or George got caught it publicly urinating in a in a parking garage and claimed that they had some sort of medical condition oh, yes. that made it so I they had this, to yes. yeah yeah and so he wrote this article that again looked like a medical article right looked like a legitimate article but it was lots of signs i mean a the condition does not exist like right. that's a good sign that if there's a peer <laughs> reviewer who actually is a urologist would say well you just made that up and it yeah. had like what was the company that george uh, vandalay oh, uh, vandalay yeah, yeah so that was right. like who sponsored it, like all these things. And again, got published, no problem. So from time to time, expert witnesses who have a position that they would like to get out into the world and would like to be able to say to a court, it's been published in a peer-reviewed journal, will publish in one of those journals. Mm -hmm. And I, I will be cautious about how much I say about this, but I got to take the deposition of a psychiatrist who I think maybe unknowingly had published in a predatory journal but if he had looked at what was published, he should have known it was not legitimate because it had just rampant typos. There was effectively no editing. But I got it was published by the same company that published the journal 
with the urology article. So I got to ask him, like, are you familiar with the television program <laughs> Seinfeld? <laughs> and you're aware that it's fiction. He said, well, I, I think it is. And got to walk through all of that, which was, was great fun. So stuff like that. That was a long answer to a short question, Leighton, but I- No, that's great. I, I'm really interested in tort law ever since I learned that that was a word because I love true crime stuff, but I also love, you know, listening to depositions. And I think one of the best- tort law books I've read is uh, Killer Show by John Berlick by about the uh, oh it's so good uh, it's about the station nightclub fire and the case that oh. they put together against a myriad of companies it's just a fabulous book and that's kind of what introduced me to it so I, I, it's just always interesting to hear well, is about. that is that the the Great White fire yes that, that one? yeah 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 what yeah. was the name of the book Killer Killer Show it's also soul crushingly depressing and upsetting. So, you know, obviously. I mean, I was just talking about that with my kid when I was out because she's starting at Brown. And so I was in Rhode Island and so I was talking about that case and she remembered me talking because that happened, what, mid-2000s? Early. I feel like it was slightly earlier, but I could be wrong. Yeah, the litigation was certainly still going when I was was teaching yeah, full-time. Yeah, yeah. 2003. Okay, so yeah, I started teaching in 2004. They went after a lot of defendants for understandable reasons, like going after the beer sponsor. Like, are we expecting the beer sponsor to check on whether there's they, they've got the right, right fireproofing, things like that? But no, I mean, was 100 people dead there? 99 people? It was oh, just a yeah. horrific. Yeah, I mean, awful. And there's still two different entities touring as Great White, which is what? <laughs> which is crazy. <laughs> like, how? Yeah. I mean, yeah. how you can get back on stage after that is just like, I, I don't. I mean, the the lead singer, I forget his name, uh, definitely his handling of the whole situation and aftermath leaves a lot to be desired. But um, do you have any recommendations for other interesting tort law cases to check out? I'm not even sure that it's still available. It's called Tort Stories. And it's kind of aimed at law students, but I think you would find it interesting. It is part of a series. I don't know what else they have. Tax stories, property stories. This came out in 2003. But it's sort of uh, classic casebook cases. So the one that I love in here is Murphy versus Steeplechase Amusement Company because it is an amusement park uh, Mm. case. And it's a classic sort of a standard of case that's used to teach about assumption of risk. And it was written by Cardozo, who was a particularly interesting writer. But anyway, so they look at these classic cases and do a deeper dive to see sort of what really was happening. Just very briefly about what that case is. It was about a guy who went to Coney Island in New York. This is 20s or 30s, I don't remember when. And got on a ride that was basically a conveyor belt. And he was on it with his girlfriend and alleged that there was a jerk and that he fell like a jerk on the belt, not a... Yeah, yeah. That still doesn't clarify it. The belt jerked. There we go. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and fell and hurt himself, right? And Cardozo sort of went through in the way that Cardozo does and ended with this great line, the timorous may stay at home, which is a great, great line, right? Like, if you mm-hmm. don't want to get fallen over, you shouldn't get on this ride. And they sort of went through a bunch of evidence that suggested that Cardozo either was looking for a case to make that point and therefore ignored some of the evidence or was taken in by a story. I don't know if I've sold that really well, but it's a really, really interesting book, and I use it in the, especially the stuff about that particular case. I was going to ask with the amusement park thing, what legal issues are there that don't center around risk and, 
you know, who is responsible for assuming that risk? So the class I teach is called Recreation and Risk. So you've certainly touched on the, the core stuff. I mean, there's there's stuff like insurance and environmental law things and things like that that I don't find terribly interesting, so I don't teach them. But what I would say, the other part that touches on or at least affects risk but is still sort of outside of that is the regulatory stuff, right? So just as an example, fixed site amusement parks, so Six Flags, Disney, all of those, there's no federal oversight for those. Um, there's no, oh, for the for the rides. I did not know Inspections that. or anything like that. There is for carnivals, sort of. Carnivals fall under the Consumer Product Safety Act, which is a little bit weird because they're not consumer products. And that necessarily means that, like the carnivals that move around from site to site. Okay, yeah. Yep. And so the hook for that is interstate commerce you have to have for there to be federal oversight. I think most courts, although maybe not the current ones, uh, would say there's <laughs> enough impact on interstate commerce that you could regulate the fixed site parks too. But for various historical reasons, they are not regulated at the federal level. So it's done state mm. by state. And it is always described as a patchwork of regulations. There's some states that don't have any regulation at all. Most of those states don't have parks either. So it's not like it's not catastrophic that Montana or whatever doesn't have regulation of amusement parks because they don't have any rights uh, or any amusement parks. Some states, Ohio and Florida, have very extensive ride inspection programs and we have to get it inspected every year and it has to have this much insurance and all that stuff. Florida has an exception where those don't apply to parks above a certain level, which basically means Disney and Universal. They basically self-regulate. And fairly successfully in their case. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. And people are always surprised at the lack of federal oversight on the fixed site parks. It doesn't seem to have a big difference. But one thing that would be a plus of having a federal system would be to have super well-trained people to do the investigations afterwards. Yeah. Because there just aren't enough, this is a good thing, there aren't enough accidents in most states to have like full-time investigators. So the people who investigate amusement park accidents often are also investigating like elevator accidents and the escalator went bad. Like there's nothing like the equivalent of an NTSB or something like exactly that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's the exact example I was going to give. In addition to studying childhood martyrdoms, my uh, daughter is obsessed with the National Transportation Safety Board Go Team. Oh. Like she watches all of their hearings and reads all of the things. Really? That's great. Yeah. She has a, a pitch ready to go. Whoever is ready to, to do a TV show based on that, she's got it all in her mind. Your kids sound awesome. <laughs> they, they are. Um, I, I, I agree with you there. One of the, the incidents I talk about was a, a very, very sad case, a drop ride in Colorado where uh, like a seven-year-old girl died. And they did a very, very, what I read as a pretty detailed analysis of it. It was the Colorado investigators came out and they figured out, okay, this is how it happened. And it's, it's an interesting and complicated and entirely avoidable situation. And so I assigned that to my class and I had a commercial airline pilot in the class who was take, going to law school part-time. And he also is very into National Transportation Safety Board <laughs> reports. And he, and he was like, eh, it was okay. But it's nothing like what you'd get at the NTSB because they don't just figure out what wrong. They keep asking why until they, they get to a root cause. And that right. wasn't what happened here. And then you make everything better because then you understand that cause and you hopefully implement something that fixes exactly. that for the next. Yeah. So I think that would be the situation where or a situation where having the equivalent of NTSB go team for significant amusement right accidents could be beneficial just because there just aren't, like I said, there, there are probably enough incidents nationwide for something, an outfit like that to be busy, 
but there's no state where enough of those incidents happen for that, which is, again, a good thing. Yes. There's a very, fun's not the word, fun for me to sit on my phone and read. Fun Wikipedia article of like every theme park accident that I was literally reading through, you know, like three days ago or something. Hence the fuck yeah text. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> along, along with other reasons, yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm curious, because the breakdown on that is so interesting and especially the differences between ones that happen in the States and also elsewhere. But the breakdown of like the liability of the theme park versus let's say a rider did something stupid, <laughs> like I'm going to reach to get my phone and oh no, I've been decapitated. I'm curious about what sort of the breakdown uh, between those two things are in terms of assuming risk. Yeah. It is difficult to say with much precision how those break down because there's no fixed park level. There isn't anybody doing a comprehensive tracking of those things because there's no federal oversight. Like when I say one thing that would be useful is the investigations. That's the other thing is to to be able to do a really comprehensive look at what's happening and why. The other thing I will say is that how to draw that line is tricky. And I'll give an example. There's a a park I love very much in Indiana called Holiday World that has wonderful wooden roller coasters, operated great. And there was, this is again, mid-2000s, a very sad case where a young woman went out on the Raven roller coaster, a great roller coaster, lots of airtime, and didn't come back. And she had been thrown from the train and died out in the woods. And the investigation concluded, and evidence from which you could conclude that she had taken off the seatbelt and possibly prevented the lap bar from going down far enough. So, right, this is a, a, a individual ratcheting lap bar. And if you have a lap bar that's down, that's really firmly on your thigh, you're not going mm-hmm. anywhere. Femur is yeah. strongest bone in the body. You can go upside down. You can hang upside down from your femur. You'd be uncomfortable, but you're not going to fly out. So that would seemingly fall in the category of somebody doing something that that increased the risk to themselves, right? Assuming you accept this notion that she took off her seatbelt and that she intentionally avoided that from going down. Most parks have somebody who comes around and pushes down on the lap bar. Holiday World certainly does too, but you could probably find people who would say that there were coaster enthusiasts and she was a coaster enthusiast who like pushed their knees up some to oh, keep it from going all the way down so they get more floaty airtime. So... In a situation like that, or there's lots of other examples of that, is that wholly on her or is that in part on the park for maybe not pushing down harder? Or should you say you shouldn't have a restraint that you can defeat, right? The the Mm seatbelt should only be something that can be unlocked electronically. There's reasons not to do that, right? It's If if there's an emergency, it makes it harder to get you out safely. It's going to slow things down. Maybe we should trust that writers will do what they're supposed to do. But those are the sorts of things where you draw that line is not as clean as it seems like it is in the first place. So what I will say is straight up failures of equipment are pretty rare. Not zero, but there was a a case in Ohio at the state fair, which is part of why Ohio has a lot of regulations now, where it was a, a big like spinny flat ride thing where just the end of it with a bunch of people just fell off. Oh my God. Yeah, the video is horrifying. Oh, when is this-ish? This was in the last 15 years. Oh my God. And it turns out, and I'm, I'm, I might not have the exact particulars right, but basically there was corrosion in a place that no matter how often you inspected it, it just wasn't a place that was visible. 
and mm-hmm. they didn't think it was a place that corrosion could occur. And now they know that it can, and they've they've done a good job investigating it so that that's not going to happen again, right? Or there was a, this one didn't, happily didn't involve any injuries, but just in the last few weeks at Carowinds in North Carolina, there was a video that kind of went, went viral where like when the train was going through the curve, yeah, I saw this you one. could see like the, the track the going support. Yeah, and you yeah, could yeah. see yeah. air through it. Those rides, it's a, a company called BNM that they're incredibly over-engineered. Like that wasn't going anywhere, but those things are uncommon. It is much more common to be sort of the interaction between where it's humans interacting with machines and where things can happen. That was a great answer. I have another question that just feels like the natural question right now. Sure. What are your favorite roller coasters? Well, I just went to Coney Island last week and I love the Cyclone and it is running better than it has ever ridden in my lifetime. Which is over 100 years old now? Is I believe right? it is. Yeah, yeah, I think it is just over 100 years old now. Love the Cyclone. It's as smooth, it's fast, it's, it is compact. It is crazy how intense the forces are on a ride that is that old. So I, I love that. I love uh, Voyage at Holiday World, the park I was just talking about. I had a weird little part in its creation. And I usually, I disclose that when I'm talking about Holiday World generally. When they were planning that ride, they had what they called the secret committee, which was a bunch of nerds. And they would have us on calls with the designers being like, do you think we should have inversions? What do you think about this? I mean, it was mostly a marketing thing, but but it was still pretty fun. And then Discovery Channel did a special about like three different new roller coasters that year and flew us out to Indiana to like watch oh, them so building great. the voyage. Wow. So, and one of the first rides that my, my daughter ever rode was that. So I have this picture of, and it's an intense coaster. I've got an on-ride photo on there. So that's sort of on the wood side. I would say those are among my favorites. On the steel side, I love Superman, Ride of Steel at Six Flags, uh, New England. There's an, uh, a couple of others that are very similar to that. Just a hyper coaster, 200 foot high there's some interesting fatalities on those. Um, like, this is the problem with having conversations with me. And when I was teaching, I, they would do an auction at the law school benefiting the Public Interest Law Society, and I would do a tortious tour of Six Flags. So, I, like, if you want it, I would take you to Six Flags, and I'd go around and talk about the things that had happened, and then I'd ride the rides with you. That That's awesome. Great. That's fantastic. I still love riding roller coasters. You're almost certainly safer at the park than on the way there and back. I just think the issues relating to them are also really interesting. This reminded me of, Leighton, you mentioned a Wikipedia page listing these these things. In case you guys don't know this page, I'm going to put a link in the chat right now. This is not strictly relevant to what we're talking about, but vaguely so. Okay, so this link is going in the chat right now. This is one of my favorite Wikipedia pages. It is a... List oh, of, the glasses flood is there. Yes. Yeah, of course you have to have, this is a list of non-water floods. Pepsi fruit juice flood. Oh, fascinating. So, which is recent, right? Yeah. Uh, mm. So it, it is a list of uh, floods with, and by the way, fatalities in many of these, uh, of, of liquids that are not water. And there aren't many. What is it? Two, four, six, eight yeah, of these. Yeah. Now, I'm sure there may be okay. others out there, but- you have to pick which flood you're stuck in from this list based on composition of flood. Don't even think about fatality, just sheer vibes. Well, well, well read us the list first so we can all, <laughs> all see right. it for those listeners who can't see this, which is everybody. Okay, in London, 1814, beer. Dublin, 1875, whiskey. Boston, Massachusetts, 1919, molasses. Same year, 1919, but in New York City, molten chocolate and butter. Delicious molten. Have- 
molten chocolate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Listen, I said, don't think about fatality. Then we have 2008 Kingston, Tennessee, coal byproducts mixed with water. 2010 in Hungary, bauxite residue mixed with water. Sure. Uh, Mariana, Brazil in 2015, tailings mixed with water. I don't know what tailings is, and I'm not... From mining. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and then finally, we have April 2017 in Russia, the Pepsi fruit juice flood, and it just says various juices. That various is doing a lot of work there. I, I some totally agree. <laughs> and I mean, that's my pick personally, various juices. If you asked Brian, you would be stuck in <laughs> various juices. Of course I do. <laughs> well, mainly because I'd be curious what the variety is. So that, yeah. that's, that's my personal pick. Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to say no to the coal byproducts, bauxite, and tailings. Right? That's right. Those, it doesn't those, sound we fun. Can, we can take those off the list right from the start. I, I mean, I feel like a lot of people would say whiskey, but like, that's a lot of whiskey. That's a lot oh, of whiskey. Get in your that's eye. right. You don't need very much whiskey for it to be fun. Yeah. And molasses, it's going to be messy. I think it's various juices for me too. I, th- yeah. I think it's molten chocolate and butter for me. Mm-hmm. That's a great it combo. It does sound delicious. It's a winning combo that would kill me, but what a way to go. Yeah, I lived in Boston for several years, and you heard a lot about the molasses flood. Like, that was a, a big part of the local lore was, you know, like 100 years ago, a bunch of people died with a molas- in molasses flood. I believe it went through the North End. I think that's right. Yeah, it was the North End. There it is. And I lived and did comedy in the North End. And so that would be a, a, a frequent reference at uh, my local comedy club, which was the Improv Asylum, uh, where I was the music director. I'm just starting to read the description of the of Layton's Choice, and I think I might be shifting over to that. Mm-hmm. To the chocolate. To the Rockwood and Company shipping department fire. Molten chocolate butter out on the neighboring streets where it blocked storm drains and caused a flood sufficient to float a rowboat for two blocks. <laughs> I didn't oh know God. that that was like the standard unit for, for flood <laughs> measurements. Okay, look at the subsection flood. Second paragraph, second line. There's a really great quote. Read it. A report in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle described, quote, an ocean of fudge, dot, 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 flooding the street, dot, 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 <laughs> like lava. I want to know, yeah. what, A, what was in the ellipses, and yes. B, I assume Ween has written a song about this. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd be surprised if there wasn't an album, a Ween album <laughs> dedicated to this. Oh, I think the chocolate, half of chocolate and cheese was actually... Oh, and then the police initially made no attempt to stop the children. It said that it attracted a thousand and one local children keen to taste the metal, the mixture. But around an hour after their arrival, truant officers began collecting the children to take them through their schools. This is... Okay, this is the one. Yeah. The greatest. I got to say, the great, the great Molasses Flood article is fabulous. There's a, a segment from an article for Smithsonian. Anthony D'Astasio, walking homeward with his sisters from the Michelangelo school, was picked up by the wave and carried, tumbling on its crest, almost as though he were surfing. Then he grounded and the molasses rolled him like a pebble as the wave diminished. He heard his mother call his name and couldn't answer. His throat was so clogged with the smothering goo. Well, I mean, that's the crazy part is you're like... Oh, it's molasses. It's got to be slow. But then you're like, oh, wait, if it's coming at you, that's like heavy <laughs> and viscous. You could imagine if like a wave of molasses hits you, you're you're in trouble. The, yeah. uh, the headline of the article I just put there is pretty amazing. Gutters run fudge. Urchins <laughs> run miles to chocolate fire. <laughs> oh, oh this is good. timer. <laughs> Opening paragraph. Hey, fellers. I know where there's a fine fire instead of water coming out. Good hot chocolate fudge is running all over the streets. You can lick it up. The cops are there, but they don't mind. They just grin. Come along. 
<laughs> I hope this got the Pulitzer. My God. What is, what is this from? Brooklyn Eagle from 1919. Oh, scroll down, though. The, the, oh, and then a boy the, brings home a bomb. Yeah, the next headline in this column is boy brings home bomb. <laughs> this feels like a Simpsons gag. <laughs> this is amazing. Urchins run miles to chocolate fire. <laughs> There's something about, you know, this like early... 20th century and before journalism where you're like, did they just make that quote up? The Hey Fellers thing? It, it, it certainly doesn't sound like someone actually said that. No. And when they reached the scene, various exclamations of delight punctuated the air. Little fellows fell on their knees before the oncoming flood and dipped it up greedily with grimy fingers. <laughs> Chocolate gorge truants, some with faraway looks in their eyes. Chocolate gorge truants? Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. This is awesome. When we're in Brooklyn, Brian, let's go find this place. Yes. We should talk about that because this is a good opportunity to do it. So in three weeks, Bill and I will be together in Brooklyn at a family music festival that you are one of the organizers of, right? It's kind of a festival and kind of a gathering for people who do kids' music. It's mostly that. Yeah. And then we force people to collaborate. Yes. And we've got you with Michael Hurst, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Who does wildly interesting songs about weird forms of transportation. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, Jim Roach and I will be out there. Uh, In fact, I'm going to Nashville in about a little more than a week to write some new Go Banana stuff with Jim and rehearse our set or part of it, the part we can do without Mike. And then we're, yeah, we're very excited to, to come out and be a part of it because also our first album came out in 2020. When Stephanie Mayers, a publicist, was pitching the article, like NPR wrote a thing on it, which was like music to keep kids busy during the pandemic, you know, when oh, you're nice. <laughs> locked at home. Like, so it was very much a pitch like, here's something for your children to do for five minutes so they'll get out of your hair. So my point being that we have not done anything, which is like actually with other people doing that same sort of thing, much less one that's curated by people we know and trust, you know. So I'm very excited to to go there, to see you, to see Stephanie, who I haven't met in person, and then a bunch of other people doing cool stuff in this scene. Because there is, you know, you, you know more about this than I do, Bill, but there is some like really weird, cool stuff happening with kids' music and people who are taking chances and doing, you know, good music that's not just someone, you know, not to be too disrespectful, but shitting out another boring folk song. Uh, <laughs> and yep. I love plenty of folk, but... It's nice to see people doing interesting stuff, and this is going to be a good collection of of that sort of person. Yeah. Before we move on, I do want to just say what the kids thing we're talking about is the the music festival. It's called the Hoot Nanny. Is that is that right? It is, and it's at Jalopy in Brooklyn. Yep. <laughs> Open to the public. It's mostly aimed at people who are in the kids' music world, but other people can show up. Yep, and uh, it'd be a great time. Yep, and uh, Go Banana Go will be doing our first NC seventeen set, and I'm very much. <laughs> Looking forward to it. All right. So we are moving on to segments now. Our first segment on the show is our pop culture recommendation segment. This is where you get to talk about a book, a movie, a video game, something you've been enjoying recently in culture, both high and low. It's called What's Poppin'? And we insert the theme song. Unfortunately, I do not have the ability to play it right now, but we insert the theme song in post and it goes here. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? Now, Bill, you've heard the show. You've heard this theme song. I don't know if you remember it, but whether you remember it or not, what do you think of it? 
I do not remember it. I apologize Great. for that. No, that's perfect. Dream situation. But it it puts me in mind, the, the same mind as reading the headline, gutters run fudge, urchins <laughs> run miles to chocolate fire. Yes, perfect. <laughs> I love it. That, that's that's exactly what I was going for. I've never admitted this before, but yes. Who the hell ever said cellar door is the most beautiful sentence in the English language? <laughs> Fuck that. Yeah. Gutters run Gutters fudge. Gutters run fudge. Gutters I mean, it sounds fudge. dirty without, I mean, clearly not intended as dirty. I assume not intended as dirty, but it sounds yeah. dirty. There's an old Letterman top 10 list, and I can't remember anything but one, which was like top 10 phrases that sound dirty but aren't. And one of them, the only one I remember was windsurfing on Mount Baldy. <laughs> that does sound pretty dirty. Yeah. But gutters run sure. fudge, number one yeah. with a bullet. Yeah. Number one, number yeah. one, yeah. absolutely. Some, some uh, fudge gutters. Layton, what's pop? Ooh, that uh, makes it even worse. Yeah. Fudge gutters. Yeah, very bad. Yeah. yeah. What's popping for me is, well, Brian and I recorded a mini-sode yesterday that can be found on our Patreon, uh, where we discussed our differing reactions to the film Oppenheimer. I thought it was a Boppenheimer, and you thought it was a Floppenheimer. Floppenheimer, yes, indeed. Uh, (laughs) I love when I'm not the one going, Jesus Christ, on this show. (laughs) And that was, by the way, another dad reacting that way to a dad joke. So you know it's bad. When you're not on the same page as as the other middle aged guy in the room, like then, <laughs> then something has gone wrong. Yeah. Anyway, so there was a, there was a lot of mention of uh, the Richard Rose's great book, Making of the Atomic Bomb, and I realized that the Oppenheimer movie is based on American Prometheus by Kai Bird and other Martin author. Sherwin, I believe. Sure. Because I've been very angry since I saw the movie on Sunday, just because this is what happens to me when I spend three hours watching a movie that I viscerally don't like. And I went back to reading Making of the Atomic Bomb out of spite. And then I was like, well, no, if I really want to be mad at this movie, I need to read the book that it's adapted from. And so I'm about 50% through American oh my God, Prometheus. Moving through that. That is a dense book too. It's a great book. It's great. It's really it's great. enjoyable. And I, you know, I went and saw Oppenheimer with Vernon who had similar thoughts. And I've just been taking screenshots of like highlighting sections in the book and sending it just like, look at this. Look at this. Look how bad Nolan biffed this shit. This is like the most Uh interesting shit in the world. Why did, why? Oh, so many. If you want to hear my thoughts on Oppenheimer, listen to the mini-sode. I just, I can't shut up about it because I'm mad. But yeah, what's popping for me is American Prometheus. So if if you liked Oppenheimer or if you didn't like it, it's a really really great story. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more interesting shit going on than it, devoting the third act fucking whole one hour denouement of the communist shit. It's the least interesting part. Even the book, all the communist shit is the least interesting part. Just fucking. <sighs> <laughs> Brian, what's popping? What's popping for me this week is uh, the fourth season of the show. Solar opposites is out on Hulu. It's uh co-created by Mike McMahon and, dare I say his name, Justin Roiland, who is notoriously uncool. And the reason I'm bringing this up right now is they did a really brilliant thing. So he left the show for reasons that we won't get into. And they wholesale, there's one character, that main character that he voiced, and they wholesale recast him with Dan Stevens, who is doing his most British voice possible. And so they take this character and just go 180, the opposite direction in terms of what this guy sounds like. And it fucking rules. Do they acknowledge the change? 
the opening scene is so the two main characters, the two main adult characters are Terry and Corvo. Corvo was the Roiling character. And Terry basically injures Corvo's throat. They use some sci-fi ray to change his voice. And now he sounds British. And it is, it's just such a big swing. And I think it 100% works because it now it's like the show was already pretty nuts. And, and, I, and I really, really liked it. And now it just got even weirder, but in a way that 100% works for me. Dan Stevens, you might know from A Million Things. He was uh, the main character in Legion, the TV series, which I thought was pretty great. He was, I think he was the Beast in the live action Beauty and the Beast. I think Downton Abbey maybe he was in. You know, British actor who's been, been in a ton of things. And he's doing a full-on, like, loud, posh British guy voice for this, and it rules. The show, actually, I recommend in general. They do some really interesting, big stuff in it both narratively and joke-wise, that I think is worth watching. But I love that they just, they took this guy out and replaced him with an actor who's doing a completely different thing. And I think it elevates the show. Makes me think of, I think it was when Bill Corbett came on to Mystery Science Theater 3000 and the mm-hmm. only acknowledgement they had was in the in the theme song. It was just like, I'm different. And that was it. Yeah, <laughs> yep. yeah totally. Okay. I, I love the, you know, the, these like big recastings and stuff like that. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they just kill a show. This one is, it's totally working for me. That's great. So yeah. Uh, Bill, what's popping? So I haven't actually watched this in a while. So I hope I'm remembering it as being pretty good, but they have a, there's a new season starting soon. It's Lupin, the Netflix France show. Oh yeah. I haven't seen that. I think it's good. Omar C <laughs> is the star and he's uh-huh. amazing. Like he's incredibly compelling. The rest of the cast is really good. My recollection is that the second season got a little bit bogged down, but I think it was really good overall. I love a good heist. The core of it is that he is a master burglar, sort of inspired by gentleman thief, Arlen Lupin, or Lupin, I don't know. I never took French. And it turns out there's sort of a, an undercurrent and he's got a, a, a motivation that I won't spoil here for engaging in these particular crimes. But it's got a lot of good sort of micro heists and then this pretty interesting macro story. And Omar C is great. I don't even know what else he's been in, but he was he's amazing in that. Great. Awesome. Well, that means it's time for our final segment, which is three parts gratitude exercise and one part petty grousing. It is called Peaches and Lemons and the theme song goes right here. Wow, holy fuck, what an absolute banger. Amazing. I'm changing my position from last time we recorded where I said it fucking sucked. I don't what I say about it next that, week remains to be seen. Yeah. So we're each going to start with a lemon, which is a thing that is a minor bummer or annoyance. I can go first. My lemon is executive dysfunction. I love the you feeling mean of Trump. Shut the fuck sorry. up, right? I'm sorry. It was it was right there. I, <laughs> I had to say something. You should something. feel bad. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. So you know, I love the feeling of I need to do this thing. I have to do this thing. My life will improve if I do this thing. I hate myself for continuing to not do this thing. Why can't I just fucking do the thing? It's really great. Terrible terrible symptom, a variety of different mental illnesses. So we have a fun little Venn diagram of people who deal with executive dysfunction. Just, I don't care for it. It's not very nice. Mm-hmm. So that's my lemon. Well, luckily in this country, executives are well compensated for their jobs. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> if 
Brian, I don't know when the last time you got two simultaneous I, sides I am was. loving it. I am loving it. When, when jokes land, I'm unhappy. So and things are going great for me personally right now. <laughs> Brian, do you have a lemon? Yeah. I, it's actually not totally dissimilar to the one you said, Layden. Why do things take forever to happen? Creative projects, whether it's a collaboration or not, everything takes in my experience, like four times as long as you want it to. And it's not for bad reasons necessarily. Sometimes it's just, you know, you're collaborating with people, people have different priorities, but I'm in the middle of a number of things right now where I'm like, move this along. And no one's acting in bad faith. No one's screwing anything up. It's just like, can we please get this over the hump? I, I think as many people these days are, I am out of love with email, which now seems to be more of a roadblock than a productivity tool, especially when it's a chain with a bunch of people on it. It's like, okay, who's replying to this? And then it just sits there for a week. My, my lemon is just that I have a number of things which I'm very excited about, which have just taken fucking forever to get to the point that they are. And they're close to done, some of them, some of them not. How how do we speed things up in a way that makes sense? And I don't I don't know if there is a a good way to do it. So that's that's my lemon. I just want things to to move faster. Hmm. That's a yeah. good one, Bill. What about you? Thanks. I have two written down here, and I'm going to tell you both because the first one is probably going to be untimely by this time this comes out. But <laughs> I'm annoyed that I feel like I'm forced to be rooting even a tiny little bit for Mark Zuckerberg in this whole fight with Elon Musk. So oh, yes. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It right. bums me out because I want bad things to happen both to both of them, but I would like <laughs> slightly worse things to happen to Elon Musk. So my lemon is, I, I think, sort of the platonic ideal of it, which is having to deal with the Apple Music structure, like iTunes mm. and Apple Music. Mm. And Terrible. Having had an iTunes library going back to as long as iTunes exists, and still being somebody who wants like actual MP3 files, has to have MP3 files because that's how I do the radio show. And it seems to be wanting to push me further and further away from that. Mm-hmm. And I have iTunes match, but there's a limit to 25,000 tracks. And it appears to just randomly delete songs if you get above 25,000, oh which God. is not, not ideal. So that's my complaint is Apple Music, <sighs> iTunes, match, iTunes. And I don't think there's a better solution that will work happily with my phone or anything else. It's just... How is it this bad in the year yeah. 2020? We had a thing. I, I I never, at least at the beginning, maybe it was sort of okay. But then as they moved from downloads to streaming for the band, we changed distributors. And in that change, we lost our entire history of reviews and ratings. Oof. Oof. And, you know, 10 plus Fuck. years. And we contacted Apple to say, hey, can we do anything about this? Like, you know, this album had a thousand you know, five-star reviews, and now they're just gone. It's zeroed out. And their response was, nah. Fuck you. Yeah. yeah. iTunes is is done. Like, sorry, we don't have that data. And by the way, this was exactly the frustrating part, not to go into this too much, was I had asked this question in the shift. I was like, okay, so we're changing distributors. Are we going to lose this data? And they were like, absolutely not. It'll be right there. No problem. And then when it went away and I asked again, they were like, oh, yeah, why? No. Why, why would you even think that stuff would survive? 
So if I wasn't already done with Apple, you know, a few years ago when that was happening, that that was certainly the nail in the coffin. Although I note that my texts to you come back blue and you had an iPad. Yeah. Oh, not actually done with Apple, just frustrated with Apple, Apple but not music, done with Apple. I should say Apple okay. music. Yes. No, <laughs> Apple products I, I exclusively have. The the one plus I will say is and I'm still not sure exactly why this is, but I get I think both of my kids' playlists show up on my phone. So I have like my daughter's like closeted seventh grade lesbian blues as a playlist like like and it's this, this fantastically must interesting be bangers yeah oh i mean the the names are amazing and the tracks are and it's a great way to hear what they're listening to so that's great that's very sweet cool all right peaches i'll do mine my first one portos shout out to portos oh, i fucking yes. love portos best what is portos? the absolute best portos is a cuban restaurant restaurant and bakery yeah Restaurant and bakery that I can only compare to going to Disneyland. It is a well-oiled machine. You wait in a roller coaster line to get up to that counter. Everything's cheap as hell. It's delicious. It's like for 40 bucks, I can get enough food to feed myself for like 72 hours. And it's like a lot of food. But, you know, they have Papas Rianas and like little chicken croquettes and a Cubano sandwich. and Little every, fruit pastries are all great. Uh, every delicious little dessert you could think of. And they're gorgeous. Just perfect. Do you go to Burbank or Glendale? I order it. Oh, smart. But smart. but I used to go every week to the Glendale one with Jory. And we would have a yeah. nice little walk. And do the it. Burbank it one great. is a scene. Yeah, it is. That was one of the few times that I've ever been recognized in public outside of a convention. And it was incredibly uncomfortable because mm-hmm. the guy would not actually talk to me. But I was sitting outside with uh, somebody who I really wanted to impress. And there was like glass and he and his grandma came and sat on the opposite side of the glass. But oh, he God. watched me through the glass oh, and God. kept pointing to his grandma. <laughs> like, it was, uh, cool. that was, that was a cool. good one. Yeah. Anyway, but but any Porto's thing other than sweets, plus the uh, same company that makes sriracha, they make the little jar of the chili garlic stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. fuck. It's the greatest thing in the world. My second peach is that today the legendary skin for Maria from Silent Hill 2 just dropped in Dead by Daylight. Yeah. <laughs> and I've okay. been waiting for this for like two months because uh, it got leaked really early. And the best part, God, nobody cares about this. The best part- It's a part, big day for you. I'm happy that you're happy. She's really quiet, okay? The other legendary skins for Cheryl, Lisa Garland's skin, I never play as her because she's so squeaky. Maria is like, it behooves you as a survivor to play a really quiet character. So I'm just, I'm thrilled. My last one is I love my friends. I'm feeling really, you know, Brian, you're on our Discord that's very active. And we've been playing a lot of Dead by Daylight. We started watching Aaron play the Resident Evil remake. It's just great. I'm feeling the love. God bless. Uh, actually, I chimed into that Discord this morning. And got ignored summarily. <laughs> well, it was a bad joke. <laughs> it was, yeah. Did people sigh? I mean, pretty much. I'm the oldest person there by more than a decade. You were also late on this riff. You know what? I'm not even going to read it. Except some, well, okay. Someone posted that they were going to, they were near something that said, what is it? 3D Blacklight Pirate Adventure. And several DMs down, uh, nine hours too late, <laughs> at 6.48 in the morning, I wrote, Blacklight Be Me Pirate Name. And nobody reacted to it. And yeah, then that's you were ignored. I had just woken up. I was looking at the Discord. Yeah. Honestly, even if it was 
a really timely response. I don't. I think that look. Was, it's a, that wasn't it's, it's land. It's a numbers game, right? Yes. You got to keep putting them out there, and eventually some of them hit. That's maybe. That's my yeah. That's good, good, good to think. Good to think that way, Brian. <laughs> yeah. Bill, do you want my job as co-host? I feel like you're hitting the perfect <laughs> level of dismissive that I try to land with Brian every week. Yeah. I'll, I could sub in anytime. <laughs> okay, Bill, what are your peaches? Yeah, peaches. I like parks. Parks are really cool. I think parks are one of the best things we've invented. We went up to the North Shore of Lake Superior in Minnesota for like three weeks in July. My wife, she hiked like 260 miles and I was like, we have a little teardrop trail and I was popping along from state park to state park being her supply person and parks are awesome and it's really cool that like you can get a hotspot and work from anywhere that's pretty cool too that was that's still all one parks so parks are yeah great i like neighborhoods i like good interesting neighborhoods with nice people um we live here in saint paul and brian when you when you move to the twin cities that you know that's the neighborhood (laughs) we're gonna get you to definitely possible (laughs) definitely possible and like while we were gone our car died. We had people visiting and, and using our car and it died. And one of our neighbors was like, oh, I'll replace the battery. And like, just, just That's did it. That's awesome. Which is great. And then we also have a, a cat who lives two doors down, but visits a lot. And when we got back from the second long road trip we were on, she was like on the front porch and so excited. And so Lion, Lion the cat also. And then the the last one is um, harder to sort of say in, in one word, but I we just got back from moving our older kid into their apartment in Providence and seeing kids sort of become who they are is pretty great. Like sent a photo last night. We had given her a bottle of champagne for like her girlfriend is lives in Chicago, but it was is out there for a few weeks and said, okay, first time you have like a nice dinner together, you can open this. And she sent a picture of it and they had a nice dinner together. And it's so like great. our old dishes and our old napkins and the champagne. Yep. And like just seeing her come into who they're going to be long-term is is pretty great. And then I will put the button on this. I've been watching my texts during this because this morning she said um, she wasn't quite cautious enough when opening the champagne and hit herself in the eye. And oh, no. so uh, she um, she thought she was okay, woke up not feeling great. So went to the ER. Seven hours later, she diagnosed with like a scratch cornea, but she's going to be okay. So it's okay, okay for me to joke about it. And... <laughs> Next time, I'm like, okay, next time use the saber thing to open the champagne. That sounds safer, right? (laughs) Uh, So anyway, people becoming who they can be is exciting. Congrats to your daughter. That's, I mean, not for the scratch cornea, but for everything else. Yeah, that part is less great. That's awesome. (laughs) Brian? Uh, Well, actually, yeah, my my first speech is very similar to that one, Bill. So uh, Audrey, who is nine and change now, is, this kid is like doing bits, pitching bits like is getting funny and intentionally funny, not little kid. Oh my God. Can you believe what they just said? Like going for it funny. And I'll just give you a couple examples. Recently, a couple days ago, she farted and then screamed, smell my wrath. Which (laughs) I thought was just great. Uh, but the 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 best example was we were at uh, a friend's house and he has a uh, a four year old and the four year old had a little friend over too and uh, you know one of the other parents that was there was like oh you know Amir you're I see you and your you and your girlfriend are are playing there and Amir the four year old was like where well, she's not my girlfriend she's not my girlfriend and then they walk out of the room and Audrey goes you know. I'm glad she's not his girlfriend. 
Only 12% of college relationships last anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And everyone was like, what? And I was like, where did, what are you talking? Where did you hear that? She's like, it's just a fact. (laughs) That one was a little, I don't think she knew how funny it was. She was a little (laughs) funny, but just to drop this, like probably made up statistic. I don't even know. Uh, in a room and then and, and then just walk out like deal with it. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. <laughs> wow. Uh, and I'll give you one more. I was driving her back from uh, camp yesterday, and she said some kid was bothering her, and she goes, "Yeah," and you know, she was all like, you know, talking about whatever, and I was all like, "Girl, okay." <laughs> and just the thought of Audrey dismissively going, "Girl, girl, okay." That's amazing. I, I thought it was very funny. Uh, so yeah, I love watching her like being intentionally comedic is is really really great. Number two, uh, the for my upcoming smooth jazz album, which does have a release date now, which I can't say at the moment, but we just wrapped like fully wrapped the first music video, which has been a long time coming, and uh, I'm very very happy to be done with it. So that is uh, like, that's the thing. That's like the missing piece I needed to like fully move ahead with the release. And my final pitch is that uh, a good friend of mine, an old uh, physics friend is on sabbatical at Caltech for the year. And this is a guy that I haven't been in the same town with. He wrote a a paper or two, two, one, two, two together back when I was in Boston and we haven't been in the same place in over 10 years. And he's in town for the year with his, his family. We're getting coffee on Thursday and it's, you know, as you grow up and you move, you, you realize how special it is to be in a place and time with cool people. And then you move away and you're not not with those people anymore. It's nice to sort of get one of those back for a little bit. And, you know, we're whatever it is, 13 years older than we were when we, you know, knew each other before we've seen each other since and been in touch and everything. But it's just like, oh, cool. I get to to hang out with this good friend again for for a year. So it's it's nice when you're geographically close to someone you haven't been close to for a while. So I'm looking forward to it. Lovely. And those are my thoughts. Awesome. Yes. And that brings us to the end of the episode. Bill, what an absolute joy this was. Thank you yes. so much for being here. It was great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I wasn't sure what we were going to do and turns out we <laughs> had plenty to do. Yeah. Just hang out. <laughs> I'm so yeah. happy we could we could make this happen, and thank you for for spending a couple hours with us today. Absolutely, yeah. We'll and I'm excited to see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is there anything that you'd like to plug to the audience? If you want to listen to the radio show, SpareTheRock.com, and uh, you can listen on demand there. KUTX.org is our home station, and listen on demand there. Fantastic. Amazing. Well, folks at home, as usual, yep. take care of yourselves. Close it uh, out, I just want, I just want to leave you with some some final parting words. Here it is. Yeah. Gutters run fudge. Urchins run miles to chocolate fire. That's exactly what I was hoping for. (laughs) Goodbye. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Late Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at leightonnight at gmail.com.